0: Hello there, it's Marshall here again, here to plug the journey into Patreon. But I really do think you'd like it if you tried it out. You can start out at just $1 a month and see what you like there. If you want to go $3 a month, I have the new Star Trek podcast that I'm doing with Keith Techlets there. And of course, there's lots of early and extra stuff on the Patreon that you're missing out on. Like this episode of the Outfield Excursions, where Rish and I talk about King Solomon's Mines, debuted on the Patreon back on September 18th. And here it is, the end of November. Now, since then, I've also posted episode 20 of the Outfield Excursions, where Rish and I talk about The Skull from 1965, starring Peter Cushing, and guest-starring Christopher Lee. So go on over to patreon.com slash Into. And check it out. But now, on with today's show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Outfield Excursions where Rish Outfield and I talk about different movies that we have agreed to watch together (laughs) and let you know about them. How are you doing tonight, Rish?
1: Oh, I'm doing fine. I I, I have to get it out of the way right at the beginning. I I feel like this is my fault that you saw this movie. (laughs) And uh, I had hoped that you would have really loved it and sent me several texts saying I'm in heaven, thank you. Uh, But that was not the case.
0: That was not the case. We were interested that uh, this is I think Sharon Stone's first major movie and we were kind of excited to see, oh, what would a young Sharon Stone be like? And this was not her movie. (laughs) So yeah, I I had a pretty low opinion of the movie. I, I I think a lot of it, though, was expectations, because I've seen parts of the 1950s King Solomon's Minds, and I remember thinking that was a pretty good adventure flick from the 50s, and you had said that you watched it recently, and so I was thinking, oh, well, you know, this will be an 80s version of it, but that'll be pretty fun to watch, so... And I, you might have told me, but I forgot that this was a, a canon film.
1: <laughs> no, I, I didn't remember. But yes, that was your first red flag, wasn't it?
0: It was I, was. I was like, oh, okay, well, we'll see where this goes. But I think had I known that, you know, in thinking about watching the movie, I would have been a little bit more prepared for, oh, okay, it's going to be not as good quality and that kind of thing, but... <laughs> I went in thinking, oh, this is going to be a fun adventure, even though it won't measure up at all to uh, Indiana Jones. And I'm guessing that's what they were going for.
1: You're guessing?
0: <laughs> you know, the the title, the poster of the movie, uh, the font and the coloring of King Solomon's Mind's title is very much like Indiana Jones. So,
1: Well, I was hoping you would like this enough that we could see the sequel... And then we could see the remake, and then we could see the remake of the remake. Then we could see the the knockoff third movie in the <laughs> the trilogy that was made to come out at the same time as Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But uh, maybe that's not the case. If if you hated it this much, you're not going to want to see the 2004 version with uh, Patrick Swayze as Alan, Alan Cortemay.
0: Oh, my goodness. Oh, now you do. <laughs> maybe I do. There's not enough Patrick Swayze out there. But yeah, I guess, you know, it—it it is made to be like an Indiana Jones type movie, although it is based on a book that was written back in 1880,
1: right? What's weird is it was 1885, so exactly 100 years before this movie came out.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. Uh, it was written by H. Ryder Haggard, and it was the first of what uh, became... The Lost World subgenre of books of somebody discovers a hidden subcontinent, somebody discovers a community that's, that's secret, that, that has vast wealth or great technology or, or something that modern man was not aware of. And, you know, like Tarzan was ripping it off and, and Edgar Rice Burroughs, well, Edgar Rice Burroughs is Tarzan. Well, who wrote The Lost World?
0: I think
1: that was Conan Doyle, wasn't it? Oh, okay. Sir, Ar- Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and I know that the pulp magazines just leapt all over it, and the, the Phantom was uh, uncovering lost civilizations. And it, anyway, it it was a very, very successful book, and the author was very famous. Uh, but he never quite had this the level of success as he did with his first book. Uh, but he also wrote one called She that I know that you and I have talked about before because that was a movie that my dad liked and he's like oh you need to see she it's got ursula andress in it and I I said I don't <laughs> I don't know who 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 she is but if she's undressed then uh, yeah I'll, I'll watch it and okay of, of course I wouldn't have dared make that joke with my father but I've always wanted to go back and watch she or uh, have somebody remake that because she is also like a lost civilization in the jungle book Okay. but it's got like this beautiful immortal white queen that all who look at her fall in love with her but you know become her slave i just i i think that that's cool I've, i'm always interested in the siren song the you know like homer's odyssey just that that idea of of a woman who entrances men and they they lose their minds when they see her. I, I there's there's something really appealing about that. And then, you know, the fact that Ursula Andress played her, I was like, oh, I want to, I want to see that again. Nobody ever has it. No library ever has it. I wonder if Netflix has it. If you had eaten this up, I think I would have said, let's put she on the the <laughs> list of of movies to watch together.
0: Well, you know, I I could get in the mood for another movie like this down the road. So again, I yeah, I think I think I just wasn't expecting it to be more of a farce than a, an actual adventure film. So
1: And I feel like that really hurt the film cuz it kind of has this maybe not brutality, but it does have a level of violence going with it that starts out at the very very beginning when a guy is What'd you call it? Impaled and like some kind of spiked mechanism.
0: Yeah, right at the beginning, you're right. It yeah.
1: makes it feel like you know the danger of Raiders of the Lost Ark is there, but it just had such a silly, carefree—I don't know, maybe more childish—tone.
0: Almost like a parody of this type of film at in, in spots.
1: Yeah, I, I I can get behind that. That's that sounds about right, and. Clearly, what they were trying to do is to make a, a on the cheap series of, of films like the Indiana Jones films. And there are so many moments where I was just like, wow, dude, this is right out of Raiders or this is right out of Temple of Doom, probably in the double digits of moments where I was just like, wow, man, did, did that bother you or did that delight you?
0: I don't know. It was a pale imitation. <laughs> so it, it kind of bothered me a little bit, but uh I I the thing that they borrowed most from Raiders of the Lost Ark and the other movies is John Rice Davies.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And I and I did like his character. I thought he was a lot of fun in this movie. He, he I guess he had the right tone for me. He can ham it up pretty good. And it comes off a lot better than it did for Richard Chamberlain or Sharon Stone. So I, I did enjoy him quite a bit. And he plays a Turkish man named uh Dagati, I think is how you pronounce his name. And he's throughout the entire film. So that, that was a lot of fun. But uh yeah, I talking about Richard Chamberlain and Sharon Stone, I mean, I know I've seen both of them act really well. In different things. You know, Richard Chamberlain was known for the TV miniseries. And he was in Shogun, which I watched several times because it was on TV. And I really kind of liked Shogun. I thought that was pretty good.
1: Well, yeah, he was he was the face of the miniseries. In the 1970s, was, yeah. there was a Rich Man, Poor Man, which was a huge success. Uh, I mean, you're probably just old enough to remember those. I. I, I only knew him from reputation, you know. But he would do one every single year, and this was the first movie theatrical film he had done since, like, the early 70s. Oh, really? And and the, the weird thing, though, is Sharon Stone had been acting for years when this movie was made. Her first movie was in 1980, a Woody Allen movie called Stardust Memories. And so you just... Why is she so bad?
0: yeah, cause because I was telling you that I was you know the the film was painful in parts and and you're like, yeah, but what about Sharon Stone? And I'm like, oh, she was terrible too. She just I, I, this came out in 80, 1985. right And by then we'd had two Raiders or Indiana Jones movies, right? This came out after. The Temple of Doom? It
1: did, yeah. This was a year after, and that's that's why there are moments that feel right out of Temple of Doom. And there are moments where she is where Jesse, her character, is a little bit like Marion Ravenwood. But there are a bunch of moments where she is like Willie Scott. Yes. And yes. and there yeah, there are some scenes that just feel like Temple of Doom light. I, I do wonder, you know, it's like why would John Reese Davies take this role? And obviously the answer is money, but...
0: And it is a bigger part for him.
1: It, it is, that's true. Uh, and he does have a lot to do, and And I don't know if if it was all on the page or if he just was good enough that they're like, oh, no, no, no keep keep going. Uh, now do this. Now say something like... Uh, but I don't know. But I, I do feel like if you make a movie that's a rip-off of the franchise that you're in, <laughs> or... Uh, you know, a parody of it that that's biting the hand that feeds you. Yeah. I mean, maybe Spielberg is cool enough to say, no, no, that's, I get what you were doing there. That's funny. Yeah. No, there's always going to be roles for you on this, in the 10 Indiana Jones movies we make. But (laughs) at the same time, there are some directors that are like, dude, Hey, that is not cool. I, I, I don't know because it, it's not funny enough to be considered a parody of Indiana Jones. But it's... See, I saw this as a little boy. You never saw it before now?
0: No, I had never seen these movies, yeah, or this movie.
1: And as a a, a kid, it all... I didn't pick up on the bad acting. I didn't pick up on the the low budget. To me, it was just like, this is like... Indiana Jones, isn't it, Dad? That kind of thing. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's just like Indiana Jones. (laughs) But...
0: And the bad ADR.
1: Oh, my goodness, dude. Like, almost every line that she had was dubbed in later. It was almost like one of those, like, Glenn Close doing the voice uh, for Andy McDowell's character in Greystoke because audiences couldn't (laughs) accept this terrible southern accent that she had And I just, I don't, I don't know why that's the case, except for that it it was made on the cheap and maybe that was how Golan and Globus did it, was, well, we'll we'll dub it all in the end. Anyway, don't worry. No, you don't need another take. You're fine. Let's just keep going. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Tell the audience uh, a little bit about the plot of the story, if you will.
0: Okay. So the plot of the story is... That Jesse Houston, played by Sharon Stone, um, is looking for her father. And she's hired Alan Quatermain to help him, help her find him in the jungle. Uh, they never... Well, I guess they do establish that they're in, like, the Congo, right?
1: I, I don't know. I don't think they ever said where it was.
0: <laughs> but uh, we know we're in the jungle because one of the first lines that Alan Quartermain says is he, he kind of stops and says, Trust me. It's a jungle out there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And that's the first moment where you thought, Oh, no. What have I gotten oh, no. into? Oh, no.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they go to this town uh, of Tongola, and they're looking for the House of Isis, which is where her father wrote her a letter from or something. So they're looking for that, but there's the the Turkish man uh, that we've talked about already named Ogadi, and he's working with a, a German, but from what I can tell, it's it's not a Nazi, it's a, a German from like World War One. I. Uh, I don't think we ever get a date mentioned either, but they have the... You know, the, the planes, like the World War I planes, and his uniform is not a Nazi uniform. So, uh, But Colonel Bachner is uh, this German soldier that is looking for King Solomon's mines, and they kidnapped Jesse Houston's father to help them interpret a map and find the way to King Solomon's mines. And the map was on a statue, or a little statuette, I should say. So the the opening scene that you talked about where one of the guys gets impaled is when, you know, they're trying to force him to decipher the map for him. But he still refuses, even though he gets whipped like a thousand times throughout the course of this movie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's one of their running jokes, is they will hit him with this thing and then it will break. Right. And they're like, oh, shoot, N- time to get a new whip. Oh, you broke it again. Uh, Three times they do it.
0: I'm surprised her father survived it all. But So they're hoping, they're watching for Jessie to show up. They're expecting her to be there, and they want to capture her before she finds her father so that they can to threaten her in order to get her father to decipher everything.
1: And that makes sense. The the thing that's interesting is that there's sort of a power struggle between Dogati and Bachner. Bachner is super arrogant and just expects everybody to fall in line. But he also seems kind of ignorant and incompetent in a way. You know, he has tons of soldiers at his command and wealth and planes, but he doesn't have the intellect that Dogati has. Delgatti is is crafty. And I think that they explain that he has a history with Alan Quartermain and despises him. He, yes. he longs to thwart him or kill him or humiliate him or, or, or something. We don't know what their relationship is. Uh, but, it, but it is one of those, and so, Mr. Quartermain, we meet again. That kind of thing.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: One thing that I will... Credit the movie with is that it doesn't feel like they shot it here in America on sound stages. It does definitely feel like they shot it out in nature somewhere. And any idea where they shot it?
0: I would guess maybe South America somewhere.
1: Okay, which it was shot in Zimbabwe, so so it was actually shot in Africa, and and then that's good because like in 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 Temple of Doom there are American alligators that are eating people and there are are people that will push up their glasses and say, well, actually, those are alligators. Those aren't crocodiles. Uh, But but it's actual crocodiles, I guess, if you shoot it in Africa.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was looking at it. I was like, are those alligators or crocodiles? And then I figured out they were crocodiles. Uh, But Alan Quartermain, even though he's been hired to help Jesse and he is helping her, he doesn't believe in King Solomon's mines. He he thinks that they're a myth and a legend, and people have been claiming to have maps to King Solomon's mines for years, and that it's all a, a scam. And so he doesn't believe that there is such a thing. But he's there with Jesse and helping her, and you know, fighting against Degati and Bachner along the way. They also have this helper slash servant or whatever named umbopo and he's a native there and uh, i really kind of liked umbopo i thought he was he was another character that kind of redeemed the show for me
1: he's afraid of our technology right
0: yes at one point they have a truck chase through the city and he's in the car with them but he's got his hands over his eyes he won't look as they're going through the town and yeah, and he, he helps them along the way, and it's at one point, they, they get on a train, and he's on the train, but the same thing, he won't do anything, he just covers his eyes while they're on the train, and at one point, we think he's out of the movie, but he comes back, and we'll talk about that, and uh, I don't know, I just really liked him, I thought the actor had, had charisma, and was a really good sidekick for Alan Quatermain. so that was a lot of fun. Um, eventually, it becomes the thing where they're all going toward King Solomon's minds, and sometimes they're ahead of Quartermain, and sometimes Quartermain's ahead of them, and at one point they follow him, they, they realize that he's the one that knows where to go, so they follow him instead of doing what they're doing. You know, very reminiscent of what we remember from Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Last Crusade. Oh, I guess Last Crusade hadn't come out yet, but... yes. so so they're in the town and they have a truck chase and then later on they get on the train and that's where some of the worst parts of the movie I thought were were on the train.
1: (laughs) There's this scene where he's crawling underneath the train and then he gets in this fist fight with another guy, with a German guy that's crawling underneath the train and... uh, at one point, he falls, right? Or uh, maybe this is later, but he falls down onto the track and the train goes over him and he grabs onto a rope and he, he's pulled along behind the train and he, he, he pulls the rope up to uh, to climb back on the train. And it was just I was like, where have I seen this before? <laughs> yes. It was exactly what they did in Raiders, except for it's on a train. And one thing that I thought was clever... Is uh, instead of actual tracks that are you know rubbing against this poor actor's stomach or stuntman's stomach, they just painted them on the ground. So while it's moving and you see <laughs> him him going over them, he's not hitting every single one of these and you know breaking ribs or whatever would happen. But yeah, he he pulls himself to his feet and for a little while he skis on the rails yeah. of the train like like water skiing. And it it's pretty well done, actually, the the stunt is, it's, it's done by Peter Diamond, who is the head stunt guy in the Star Wars trilogy. Uh, but then every once in a while they will cut to Richard Chamberlain, and it's obviously he's not really there, and it's just, you know, rear projection. And it's so bad that it's jarring. I, I don't know if you know what I mean, but like when somebody's really doing something, you're like, hey, this this is pretty good. I can get behind this, even though it's a stunt person. But then when they cut to the actor and he's obviously in a different location or no location at all, I'm like, oh <laughs> Yeah,
0: and they did that so much for of the movie. Even when you wouldn't think they would need to, they used the rear projection and it just it always looks bad.
1: Yeah, the okay, but you were saying that there was it was really bad. That there was mo- one moment though. <laughs> when he bursts in on all these Germans and he's got a pistol and for some reason they're all standing there with their rifles raised at him and he sort of talks his way out of it and starts singing Yankee Doodle and they're all singing along with with a bugle And oh yes that's right very good guys yeah
0: yeah Uh, (laughs) great reflexes boys yeah I'm proud of you guys well hey
1: May I? Let's have some fun! And I was just like, okay, you know, I like this. I like this moment.
0: (laughs) I did not.
1: I know it's stupid, but it, it, it... It was so cartoony, dude. It was just the... It, it was something that Bugs Bunny would do. <laughs> yeah, that's He true. would like say, oh, here I am. Thank goodness, you know. Uh, I was just checking to see that you guys were all uh, at attention. All, you all have your rifles. Good, good, good. Oh, hey, uh, nice form on that. But you, you you're, you, need to hold it closer to the stock. Okay, good, good. And they just let him by. And then they turn and, and look at the door again, wait, waiting for Bugs Bunny to come in so they can shoot him. And then one by one, the guys go, wait a minute, who, who, who is it we're waiting for? It's like, oh, that guy that just came through. That's what I thought.
0: <laughs> and it, it made sense when Sharon Stone did it, because Ellen Quatermain told her to stay on the roof of the train, stay where she was with Mbopo. And of course, she only stays there for a little bit. And then she runs off because she wants to find her father. And there's times where she has to get past guards that are on the train, and you know she just uses her feminine wiles and says, "Hey boys," you know, kind of thing. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense, and it works for her. But yet, for me, it did not work when when Quartermain did that. I guess again, you know, is this a real movie or is it a a comedy or a parody kind of thing? But then they get to the lat the caboose where the, her father's being held and whipped. And he's looking down on them through a little transom window, and he's trying to figure out how he's going to help the father escape or, and take care of everybody. And then Sharon Stone just shows up, and then the train stops, and she falls through the window and delivers herself right into their hands. And I just, ugh. It's just, yes, I know people are stupid and, and whatever, but that just to make her that dumb... I don't know I I started wondering whether I should turn it off and come back to it the next day or something at that point but uh, and this is this is where they continually whip her father and then one of the soldiers is whipping her father with her there and he says you know
1: I find you most attractive you're a swine
0: I wasn't talking to you I was talking to your father or whatever. I thought, well, that's odd. That's weird <laughs> to just throw that in there. <laughs> that's
1: odd. I, well, I I think that they were going for a just a, a a much more slapsticky kind of thing, and the like the asides, the stuff that Quartermaine says to nobody, says to himself, or says to us, is something that, like George Lazenby says it at the beginning of. On Her Majesty's Secret Service to the audience to you know let them know that I I recognize that this is a movie, uh, but you don't see it that often. It, I I guess Indy does it a couple of times. People do do it a couple of times, but I wanted the movie to be more serious. I I would have liked it so much more if I had felt that these characters were in danger, and that that things could go disastrously wrong, and the villains. John Reese Davies is pretty ruthless. At one point he says he's going to cut out her father's eyes and pop them like grapes or something or stomp on them so they pop like grapes. Yeah. And you believe it. He's a he's a very bad guy and he wants to do this. But then Herbert Lahm, who plays the, the German colonel, he is such a buffoon. And like almost every single thing that he does is incompetent, or it's for comic relief. And so, you know, he wants to get all the treasure of King Solomon's mind so that the Germans will have all this wealth to be able to rule the world, you know, destroy their enemies, which is a credible threat. But he's not. And so it just, it feels, I, I guess it it just feels hamstrung, you know?
0: Yeah, like, like he's always playing, he has a phonograph that's always playing Wagner, You know, the Flight of the Valkyries or whatever. (laughs) And they don't only play that joke once. They play it many, many times. And there's a guy that's in the army with them that's his only job is to pack the uh, phonograph with him. And you see it on his back when they're in fight scenes. (laughs) That kind of thing. At one point, toward the end, they run into quicksand. And the phonograph gets sunk down in the quicksand and that's the colonel is all upset about that he's more worried about that than uh, anything else and so that kind of stuff doesn't fit with what he's trying to do so did you catch maybe maybe i'm wrong but there was wasn't there two or maybe even more scenes where he's holding dynamite or an explosive uh, alan Quarterman, and he says something like i got it yeah and then throws the dynamite or whatever. But, and I was trying to figure out. I'm like, what is he trying to? Oh, see, to... it was
1: a, it was a callback to the guy who had the the map. They had gone into the house of ISIS, and to escape, Quartermain lights this dynamite and he throws it up into the rafters. And it says, you can either, you know, go up there. You've got, I I can't remember what he says. Twenty seconds or something like that. You can either go up there and pull it out, or you can come after us. But you can't do both, or something like that. And so the guy climbs up there and he he grabs the dynamite. And, you know the and the other bad guys are you know are worried that the whole building's going to blow up. And that guy grabs it at the last second and says, "I've got it." And then he he blows up. And <coughs> Quartermain says that later in the film, "I've got it." And then he throws the. Dynamite, and it blows up. And then he says it again later in the film. It's just... uh... Right. Oh, and yeah, there's the train scene where he throws the dynamite, and I'd say it's a quarter of a mile he throws it. That guy is just has an amazing arm. (laughs) He does. Uh, He is obviously having a good time, Richard Chamberlain.
0: I think so, yeah.
1: That helps, but it also hinders the tension of the film it, it hinders the, the the sense of danger and I, I guess it's a fine line that you have to walk you know I am I, reminded of other adventure films that you see like uh, just this week I saw Jungle Cruise you know the the Disney movie that's based on the Disneyland ride yeah. and they want to be a little bit scary but not terrifying and they want it to be fun, but also for it to be dangerous, and so the rock Dwayne Johnson has to maintain a balance between the wisecracking tour guide and the the guy who knows just you know what will happen if this gets into the wrong hands, uh, or uh, Brendan Fraser in the 1999 Mummy, where he is a comic character, but. <laughs> The, the the danger is very real. The mummy is scary. The forces that they're up against are truly evil, and so it's 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 a a tightrope of how how silly do you be, and how serious do you be. But I think the scene that works the worst <laughs> is that there's an airplane scene, and it's this airplane scene where he's trying to start the the, the plane by spinning the propeller while Sharon Stone is in the cockpit
0: yeah i was gonna bring this up too yeah it, it's a pretty bad scene where he's says push the red button while i spin the propeller and so he's outside of the of the airplane and sharon Stone says i'm hitting the button i'm hitting the button i don't know and then it does start up and then i guess she's got her hand on the throttle or whatever but that the plane starts taking off and yeah he's chasing after it and eventually, he gets in there after some mishaps. And and then she, he takes over and he's flying the plane. But then there's another German ace out there that comes after them in his airplane. How he knew they were in an airplane or why he's chasing after them, I'm not sure. Other than I guess it could be in the middle of World War One, But anyway, first of all, Sharon Stone is just yelling and screaming and and when she's flying the plane, she's saying stuff like... My
1: father always wanted a boy. he knows how to drive this thing.
0: Just like, women can't do it, but if she was a man, she could. And then uh, when she starts getting the hang of it, she's like... Oh, it's like a car. Vroom! <laughs> she actually says the word, the sound effect, vroom. And uh, I was just... Dying at that scene, not not in a good way. <laughs> uh, but then the the German ace, he's talking to himself and he's saying, "Very brave. But if you have either kind brain in your head, you will be pulling away now. Right
1: there between your legs, pull <laughs> it."
0: And they're kind of playing a game of chicken, and they win because. You know, she doesn't know how to fly the airplane, and he he does end up getting shot down, I believe. But, you know, he's made out to be the, the weird comic character. You know, if this was a comedy, and I guess maybe it was, I don't know if it was sold as a comedy or as an adventure film. But maybe if I knew it was supposed to be a comedy, you know, I could handle that kind of stuff. But uh, I don't know if that's what you were getting at with the airplane scene, or if, or if you had... More points to that, but
1: well, it's just it's it's a really impressive stunt because the stunt guy grabs onto the wing of the plane and the plane takes off and he's just holding on as Sharon Stone flies all over erratically and crazily because she doesn't know how to fly a plane. And it's just a miracle this guy does not fall off. But they didn't do it with a dummy or anything. They did it with a real person. But the danger is undercut by these constant, stupid lines that she is giving and then he is giving. And and it's just, it, it's sad because silence would have been better. It would have. Just the, so many, like, dumb, accidental successes. It, it, in that airplane scene alone, where she beats the guy playing chicken because she's not paying attention later she finds two bombs in her chair and she says what are these
0: and, <laughs> yeah that's what it was
1: and he's just like drop them and find out and it drops right onto the German camp I I don't know I enjoyed the movie more than you did but I wanted to enjoy the movie a lot and I I couldn't because it was constantly undercut by the badness of the movie. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And then there's scenes where I wasn't sure if they were trying to be serious, you know, trying to, to get it. Um, but it just comes off as so farcical. Like, I think after they get out of the, the plane and they have the map to the mines and they think they have one up on the Germans, they kind of have this little scene t- together and he says, really earnestly and seriously, he's like, I don't believe in the minds, but I'm starting to believe in you. And I'm like, okay, is, is that supposed to be the moment? Or, you know, I mean, it it comes off kind of lame. And I don't know if it was supposed to be a serious line that, oh, these guys, you know, he really believes in her or whatever. But it just, to me, it came off really, really bad. And again, maybe I just came into this with the wrong mindset. Maybe I'm not having enough fun with it, but... I did find the scene where they ran into the cannibals to be done really well and interesting. It, like you said, it wasn't a set piece in a studio somewhere. It was it was on location somewhere, and this tribe takes them. Eventually, they realize that they are going to be boiled for dinner. There's this humongous pot. You know, they they have this big gangplank and they bring them up there and force them to go into the pot and there's a bunch of vegetables in the pot and stuff like that. It's the water's going to get hot. And, and, and eventually he figures if they dive down to the bottom of the bowl and they go back and forth, swim back and forth and push against the edges that eventually they could rock the bowl enough to tip it over. Uh, I thought that was fun. That was interesting. The natives, you know, seem to be a big threat and, you know, being cooked alive is something that would be terrible. And they found an interesting solution to it. And I thought that they pulled that scene off pretty well. Um But then once they tip it over and all the water comes out of it, then they start rolling down the hill Uh kind of impossibly, you know, and you, you see them inside the bowl and the bowl rolling down and it doesn't match up very well. And so that was kind of undercut by the... The resolution of that oh and then when the the bowl finally stops turning and they're kind of recovering from being dizzy and rolled around and that's where they have their big makeout session there there's these lions that show up and trap them inside the bowl and from their point of view looking outside of the bowl you see one lion but then when they show outside the bowl there's like five lions out there and some of them are resting right against the mouth of the bowl and there is the, the main lion there but then when they go back from the point of view of the characters there's only the one lion you could overlook some of those things if you were into the movie more but again I, I, I'll i give them credit for that scene I thought they, they pulled that off pretty well and you know it took a lot to build that huge bowl that they were trying to get out of
1: If you say so. I think you could probably make a bowl that size. (laughs) Yeah, there are two scenes with natives, right? Because there's also the scene where they're grabbed by natives that are hanging upside down from their legs from trees and like bungee cords or something. I'm not sure how they do it. They're on vines and they swing back and forth and and there's this just ludicrously stupid explanation that they don't like the, the way the world is, and so they've chosen to look at it from a different point of view, upside down. <laughs> yes, and they they're good judges of character, and they let Quartermain and Jesse go, but they don't let the bad guys. The the they you know they start they pull the Germans up and then they start dropping them.
0: Right. Oh, <laughs> and that's where Alan Quartermain makes the really funny joke where he says, oh, must be hell keeping change in your pockets, huh? (laughs) But there's actually three different tribes, because after that one, they run into another tribe that wants to kill. They're they're more like the Guardians, because it's right at the entrance of where the King Solomon's mines are at. And they're there to protect it, and they surround him in this old woman leader of the tribe comes out and he calls her Prune Face. She's kind of telling the natives what to do. Jesse and Alan are surrounded by them and this other strange painted guy comes out and he's dancing around them and kind of screaming at them. And I can't remember what happens there if they're put in peril more than that but at some point Umbopo comes back Because he had left when they saved her father uh, off the train. And Alan Quatermain said, take her back to, or take him back to the city, to Tongola. And so that that, we've lost sight of Mbopo at that point. But then he shows up to save them with this third tribe. And it turns out he lifts up his shirt or tunic or whatever he's got on and shows this mark on his stomach and i guess he's the true leader of the tribe somehow so he saves their lives and helps them go into the the cave area where the mines are at so i thought that was kind of interesting it was good to see umbopo again in there but then the germans show up and they just start slaughtering all these natives and they they did that earlier with the earlier natives too and they're just there's dead natives all over the ground
1: <laughs> Yeah, John rhys Davies has this machine gun. Yeah. That just, I mean, it does what machine guns do. And there are several shots of him just enjoying using this gun. And there's a couple of shots where, like, he is the point of view and you just see the barrel of it mowing people down.
0: Yeah. Well, that's pretty brutal and violent. And it's in the middle of all these jokes and stuff. It's just kind of a strange tone. They keep shifting around. But uh, oh that's where the alligators were.
1: Oh yeah the alligators let's let's talk about that
0: or the the crocodiles actually that's where the crocodiles were is they were gonna dip him down into this pool of, of crocodiles that's that's what was going on when in showed up. And then I guess the last piece is kind of where they go into the temple of Doom <laughs> and this this old leader the this prune face... <laughs> Uh, It does escape from the attack, but and she takes Jesse with her, Sharon Stone, and a couple of her guards, so that she gets separated from Mbopo and and Alan Quartermain. And so they make their way into the mine, but then this leader takes her into the the caves as well. And they meet up, and Jesse Houston is in the middle of this big, like over this lava pit, this... Volcano, and she's being held back by the guards and forced to stay in the middle of this thing. And then these other guards show up with this molten helmet thing, and they're gonna put it on her head and kill her. And the, the old lady's just over there laughing, ah, ha ha, you know, this is gonna <laughs> be fun to watch. And, <laughs> and they, you know, of course, Ellen Quartermain saves her from all that, but that, yeah, just that's just seemed kind of weird to me. Just all these different little things are happening, uh, but then I, I, then I think toward the end it gets more what you'd see in a typical movie like this, an adventure movie where there's treasure to be found, and the good guys and the bad guys are both there. And
1: Yeah, one of the things that I really liked about it, and I, I liked it in spite of myself, was all the booby traps in, this, uh, in, in the mine. And I just, I, I really like booby traps. <laughs> and, I, and I like boobies. I'm, I'm, okay, sorry. That's neither here nor there. <clears throat> there's, there's one part where there's three entrances, and they don't know, the bad guys don't know which way our heroes have gone. And so the German leader sends somebody down each passageway. And if they are killed, then okay, that's not the way to go. And there's a place where there's a bunch of rocks. Is coming out of of the water and if you step on the wrong rock the they all drop into the, the water and you are killed by a dinosaur by a paper mache well, dinosaur know, you
0: don't know the first time the first time somebody dies it's just the the water is bubbling and I'm like is that piranhas or you know what was I killing thought it was people?
1: acid or something like that and anything was better than what it turned out to be <laughs>
0: yeah yeah it was like a giant hippo or something like that that
1: yeah but it was oh it was it was so terrible, yeah, you couldn't tell what it was except for that yeah. it wasn't what it was supposed to be and then there
0: was a a giant spider in the in other oh, yes. entrance
1: <laughs> wasn't that great? It was even <laughs> worse than the giant spider in the ewok adventure
0: it was, yeah, it kind of reminded me of. And I think I brought this up at some point before, but on one episode of Gilligan's Island, they're trapped in a cave with a giant spider that you can tell is obviously just a man in, <laughs> covered in a suit or whatever. And this was pretty much on, on par with Gilligan's spider, this this guy. But again, I kind of like with you, I, I did enjoy this whole thing in the caves. I thought this was good fun.
1: Uh, yeah, so Jesse and Alan they they make it into the the area where the treasure is, and and yeah, it's just like tons of gold and diamonds, just giant diamonds and small diamonds and medium sized diamonds, <laughs> uh, and they fill their pockets and just I, I there is something delightful about that, about the idea of of finding that kind of wealth. And, you know, you have endless possibilities now of, from this point. And I think it's the witch, the what you called prune face. She, she pulls some kind of lever or something. First the door closes so they're trapped in there. And then she flips a, a lever and the, it becomes a compactor, you know? like ceiling starts to lower on them. And I just, I'm a big fan of that, of, of the the spike chamber or the com- dr- trash compactor or whatever it is, you know, just the walls closing in. They, they're, they're certain to die in there, but what's ends up saving them is that the, uh, oh, and we didn't mention this at, at, at so, so there are, are various times when John Reese Davies is on top and times when Herbert Lom is on top. But finally, when they get into the temple of doom, uh, Herbert Lom shoots, John Reese davies like seven times and, you know, says, I don't need you anymore and there can only be one leader and that's me. And and and, and so you're like, oh, well, that's too bad because the, the less yeah. charismatic one lived. Anyway, he makes it through there, uh, meanwhile, losing like all of his lieutenants. And, and I love that. That's why you have soldiers. That's why you have lieutenants is so that they can be killed in interesting ways. But the main bad guy <laughs> can make it all the way through to the end. He's upset because the door has closed to the treasure chamber, but he doesn't know that they're being crushed in there. And so he blows up the door, right? And enables them to escape, which, which I liked. So, so he goes in there and now he gets his chance to grab all the treasure and, and, and boast about it and be happy and fill his pockets. And he fills his hat, which is really, really dumb. It is. But then John Rhys Davies steps in, and he's alive, and it turns out he had armor on un, uh, under his shirt, like yeah. some kind of chain mail that, that saved him from the bullets. It was mithril, right, From that he got from Bilbo Baggins. Oh, it could have been.
0: <laughs> but it, he said it was of Turkish design, so...
1: Oh, okay. Well, then... <laughs> I, I'll take his word for it, because it saved him. <laughs> and he... This—it's just—it's kind of a cruel moment, and it did sort of bother me because it's prolonged. But he insists that Herbert Lom's character eat the diamonds. You heard what I said. Eat the stones. You're mad. You're insane. What use are the stones inside me? Don't trouble yourself, my friend. When I get you home, I will split you open. Now. Eat the stones. That's terrible. But there's this really fun joke where Herbert Lam says, well, Germans have the best. Oh, gosh, what was the word that he used?
0: Laxatives.
1: That's right. Yeah, it's, it's well known that Germans have the best laxatives in the world. And yeah, John Rhys-Davies says, well, I won't be needing them. But he forces him to eat these. And I don't know how many we watch him eat, but I'd say like five or six of these diamonds. <laughs> and it looks difficult and painful. And it's—I—I uh, I, I guess the audience wanted to see this character get his comeuppance, but I did. Uh, I did feel kind of bad.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, because each time he swallows a stone, he kind of smiles, and it's like, oh, okay, so I've done what you wanted me to do. We're done. He's like. Eat another stone, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but then somehow Colonel Bachner gets the the lead on. Or, oh no, yeah, he sh- he shoots up into the ceiling of the of the cave, and it starts to cave in, and John Rice Davies gets crushed by one of the stones, and so you know he giggles and makes his escape. He's, he's finally killed Degati, and. He's going to be able to escape. And then there's one more confrontation between Bachner and Alan Quartermain and, and Sharon Stone. They're just leaving, and he catches up to them on the stones. They're almost all the way across, and he, he stops them and forces them to put all their diamonds on on the rock, and they choose to put it right next to the red rock that you're not supposed to step on. And he says, no, put it in my hat. And he takes off his hat, and he's got all these diamonds on his bald head. (laughs) And they say, nope, you're going to have to get them yourself. And so then he steps forward onto the red stone. And that's when the giant rock hippo, or whatever it was supposed to be, comes up out of the water and, and eats Bachner. And so they're able to escape and get away. And I think at this point, Umbopo is still with them. They're getting out. But you can't kill John Rice Davies because (laughs) he survived again. So him and Alan Quartermain have their their final confrontation. And so it's just the two of them fighting against each other. And uh, I think eventually Degotti gets thrown into the lava pit. Is that right? Is that how he meets his end finally?
1: And he explodes. Yes, he explodes. Anytime somebody fell into the lava They superimposed like a great big explosion, a TIE fighter blowing up kind of thing. And as a child, I was just like, oh my gosh, what a horrible way to die. But as an old man, I'm like, that's not what would happen.
0: (laughs) You hadn't seen Lord of the Rings yet to see somebody slowly descend into Molten lava. Terminator 2, I guess they did that too. So that's, that's pretty much the end. They leave... The tribe of Umbopo, uh, and then they reveal to each other that they each have at least one diamond left, and then they have their last kiss, and that's that's the end of the movie.
1: Yeah, it's a big long kiss with all of the natives like dancing around and celebrating behind them, uh, and then the and then the camera like ra- rises above and the credits roll, and I, I I swear that's how Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom ends. Uh, not, not, I swear. I know that's how Indiana Jones and the Temple of Two Men's, uh, but it's, uh, it, I, I mean, Sharon Stone, as terrible as she is, she is just an, an astoundingly attractive lady. And to be able to, to, to be in a scene where it's just like, okay, guys, we got three minutes of credits that have to roll. So if you wouldn't mind kissing for three minutes, and I was like, well, all right. But, uh. <laughs> if I have to, yeah, yeah, it's Like the things I do for art. So yeah, I, I was, I did enjoy the end,
0: probably most of all. With once I got to the caves, uh, I enjoyed most most of that stuff because it was, it was more into the yeah. This is the adventure and this is the fun and yeah. There's still some stupid stuff going on, but and bad special effects and whatnot. But I was more into that than I was anything else in the movie. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of good. And I again, throughout the whole movie, the saving grace was John Rice Davies. I enjoyed all of his stuff.
1: well he he is having a good time, but he's also threatening, and he also seems to be able to pull off this dialogue and make it not sound terrible. And then maybe that is yeah. just the mark of a really, really good actor is, you know, it's like, these are not good lines, but I'm going to internalize them and the character is actually going to say these lines and mean it, and you believe him. He belonged in a much better... He belonged in the Steven Spielberg version of King Solomon's Minds.
0: Yes. And I guess I I was just expecting more from Richard Chamberlain, who I remembered, you know, being this good actor and him just being a cheeseball the whole time. And then Sharon Stone, you know, I th- I thought she'd be a lot better. I don't know. Maybe she's better in the sequel. Maybe we should watch the sequel because they both come back for that. So
1: Yeah, the movie did do well enough that a sequel was made called Alan Quatermain and the City of Gold, which came out the next year. And there are uh, differing accounts as to how, how long a stretch there was between the making of these movies. But it sounds like as soon as they wrapped on... King Solomon's Mines, they started on the sequel. Oh, okay. Uh, but the director, and we, we, we hadn't really talked about the director. He was a fine director. He did Cape Fear, the 1960 version of that. He did The Guns of Navarone, which is one of the most famous war movies yeah. uh, ever made. But this was at the very end of his his career, and he was really only doing Golan and Globus Productions like Death Wish Four and Firewalker with uh, the guy whose beard punches you back, uh, Chuck Norris and <laughs> stuff like that, and and it just, well, I mean he was he was still working, and I guess that's good, but but boy, how the the mighty had fallen from the guns of Navarro.
0: <laughs> I got another sense of this too that kind of turned me off a little bit. And it's, you know, part of it's just being the time that it was made, you know, that the eighties weren't known to be a great sensitive period, <laughs> but there was a, I thought there was several racist parts to the movie too. Like when in the, in the first, in the opening scene, when they're in the town, the Tongola. Um, at one point, calls, she calls uh, Kazam or whatever, whoever they're talking to there a camel, a camel jockey. camel
1: jockey, that's right. And I'm like, ooh,
0: that's, isn't that racist? That's racist, right? Yeah, I think it is. And then <laughs> Alan Quartermain calls him a towel-headed freak. And so I'm just like, ooh, I'm just wincing at each of these little things as it's going on. And then there's this weird scene, like what I was talking about the cannibals when they were going to be eaten. And this other couple who I guess they were going to cook and eat, but this, it was an African American couple that come out and they look at Alan and Jesse and just kind of say like, bye bye or whatever. And they leave. And then Alan Quartermain says, I guess they prefer white meat. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, man. <laughs> This would not stand the test of time,
1: but... Oh, dude, I... Okay, well, listen, I'm going to tell you t- something about the sequel, and then you just ponder it. So the sequel, the bad guy, is played by James Earl Jones in Alan Quarterman really? the, the City of Gold. And Cassandra Peterson is another bad guy, or uh, Cassandra Peterson being Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. So <laughs> so at least consider it okay <laughs>
0: that that's an enticement there they they can stand in for John Rice Davies, I can enjoy them more than I do the other two characters so yeah i, I don't know I, I again, I think maybe if I was prepared mentally for that it was a canon films movie, and I shouldn't expect anything great but just enjoy what's what's there in the camp and and whatnot. Maybe I would have enjoyed this movie a little better. But for the most part, I'm like, oh, okay, I'll get through this. (laughs) And I didn't want to watch it another day. So I'm like, I'll just get through it. I'll just watch the whole thing. But there were parts that I enjoyed. So, But I don't think I'd recommend it to other people to watch it, (laughs) unless they're into that kind of thing.
1: If you could see this on a big screen with like a bunch of college kids... And everybody's laughing and mocking the movie in the same way as, you know, you see a a bad movie, but it's so bad, it's good. The movie is redeemed by something like that. But to have to see it by yourself, yeah, that, maybe I asked too much of you. <laughs> there, there was one, another thing that I did like about the movie, and Jerry Goldsmith did the score. Yeah, he did. And Jerry Goldsmith is way too good. For this movie and it just every once in a while I would hear the music and I'd go oh hey this is this sounds good uh and I'm sure you know he had a very small orchestra and no budget and no time to work in but you know he was one of the great composers and uh
0: yeah I, I don't think I have any complaints about the the music in it other than Wagner <laughs> we could probably watch the sequel but maybe not right away
1: yeah I, I well we can give it a a break and Six months from now, or a year from now, when when you tell me you're ready, then we will uh, we'll talk about it.
0: I did think while I was watching this movie, oh, maybe I should have watched Wasp Woman.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I had I missed my one chance. <laughs> the thing is, in the same way as Battle Beyond the Stars, uh, which was, I guess, our last episode. You know, it's a Star Wars knockoff, but. There there were a lot of things that I thought worked just fine. And maybe the difference is that that had a, a much better script. John Sayles had written a script that, that works, despite the really low budget and, and some of the really, really absurd, dumb moments in Battle Beyond the Stars. <laughs> this didn't have a good script. It was an Indiana Jones ripoff. But I just, I love Indiana Jones so much that I... I still enjoyed parts of it in the same way as I enjoy parts of Battle Beyond the Stars because I love Star Wars. I don't know. I I guess maybe I'm saying that as the bigger a James Bond fan you are, the more you will enjoy the Austin Powers movies. Is that possible?
0: Yeah, I would think so. That's a good comparison.
1: But I could also see somebody who just loves Bond... And says, you know, no, that's not that stuff's not funny at all because it's making fun of my favorite genre my favorite franchise. I don't know. It's kinda of like the nineteen sixties Casino Royale, which is one of the worst movies I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, I have never I've never seen that one. And I probably won't. But yeah, now you got me thinking because you know, why did I enjoy Battle Beyond the Stars? even though it was bad quality and I but I I didn't like this one for the most part and I guess it it does come down to the the script or maybe I like sci-fi better than adventure type movies but I like those so it's complicated I guess
1: yeah it it is complicated and, and this did not get good reviews when it came out in 85 and I'm sure it it doesn't get good reviews now but maybe there are other Indiana Jones knockoffs out there that uh that would be worth our time i just i i I don't know of any
0: on our last delusions of grandeur episode you mentioned uh dora and the lost city of gold and i actually liked that one and that was kind of an indiana jones knockoff as well but i don't know if you want to sit through dora and the city of gold
1: i don't know i really like that girl i do too i mean was that intended to be a franchise do you think
0: I think they were they would if if it... I don't know how it did theatrically, but they could easily make that a, into a series. But, you know, there's a lot of in-jokes in there, you know, from the Dora cartoon, of course. So that, that was some of the charm of it as well. So I, I think next up we've talked about, for our October episode, to watch The Skull.
1: Wait, remind me what The Skull is again.
0: it's actually directed by uh freddie francis and it stars peter cushing and christopher lee oh okay and uh i think it's a hammer film it would it would fall right in 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 line with those but yeah i think months ago i had found that movie and sent it to you and said we we really need to do this for our october
1: episode well that's good yeah I, i i'm happy to do that there's uh Movie called House of the Long Shadows that came out in 1983. Mm. And I was thinking of suggesting we watch that in October. And the reason you would want to see House of Long Shadows is it's a PG rated horror film starring Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing. Oh, wow. And uh, I remember I saw it as a child when back in the days when our parents would rent a VCR uh, and so you could watch a movie. Unfortunately, it was produced by Manaham Golan and Yoram Globus and put out by Canon (laughs) Films. So who knows how good (laughs) it truly is?
0: (laughs) Mm, maybe next year. (laughs) There you go. I am interested, though, because those three together would be pretty fun.
1: Yeah, the fourth horror icon is John Carradine, but almost nobody remembers old man Carradine anymore, so I didn't mention him.
0: I'd probably recognize him if I saw him.
1: So yeah, I think I
0: think we'll we'll do that next time. But uh, even though I, this wasn't a, a fan favorite for me, I always enjoy talking about the movies, even if I didn't like watching them in the first place. So
1: yeah, it's too bad you and I don't live closer together because it would be fun to just say, "Hey, let's uh, rent two movies and we'll watch them and we'll do two episodes and then you know." Three months from now, we'll do it again, something like that.
0: Yeah. We might be able to pull that off at some point, but who knows. Um, hey, if you enjoy this podcast and want to offer suggestions for movies that we want to see or or that you want us to watch, feel free to contact us at podcast at gmail.com. You can also call on the voicemail line, which is 77 J into 107 and... We are, I am going to put up a poll at some point. I believe it was Keith Techlitz that suggested we do another Scott Atkins movie. So I, I'll probably put a poll up on the Patreon at some point and everybody can vote on which Scott Atkins movie they want us to watch. Um, but if there's other things like that, that uh, suggestions that you have for PG-13 movies. A Lesser, <laughs> um, yeah. Please, please suggest those to us, and we'll we'll put it on our list. I finally put together a, a little spreadsheet of movies that that we have done and that we could possibly do. So, and I, I think you've added a few to that list as well. If you want to support the podcast, you can go to Patreon.com/slash Journey Into and check out what I have for you over there. Uh, any last things that you want to talk about or you want to say about King Solomon's mind?
1: No, no, not at all. Except for uh, if there are other Indiana Jones knockoffs that you can think of uh, mention in the comments. Yeah. Because I, I'm sure there are some that I'm just not thinking of right now. I, I mean, and you can, of course, say Tomb Raider and stuff like that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like something that deliberately rips off. Raiders of the Lost Ark or, you know, the, the indie movies. Uh, I, and I know they, they were popular in the the 80s because they were much cheaper to make than a sci-fi movie. And you could just, you know, go out in the desert somewhere and make something like this. I, maybe this is the biggest, the most successful one. Heaven help us. <laughs>
0: There's got to be a better one than this one. All right. Well, I guess that just leaves us to say goodnight to each other. So, uh, good night, Rish.
1: Good night, John Boy. Uh, good night, Marsha. <laughs>
0: good night, everybody. The Outfield Excursion podcast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non commercial no derivatives license. You cannot sell it or alter it. If you do, you may be fed crocodiles, boiled alive, or forced to swallow diamonds. You are, however, encouraged to share the podcast with everyone, Germans, Turks, Africans, Americans, unbelievable rock hippos, whoever. And just remember, it's a jungle out there.
1: Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus were the heavyweights. They were the George Ormans and uh, Muhammad Ali's of the indie market. Canon is the only
0: company who loves cinema. Cinema is our life. Yoram Globus was
1: the businessman
0: behind the movie making. Menachem Golan was the movie maker.
1: They were the forerunners of the Weinsteins. The difference is the Weinsteins cared about quality. Sometimes we make better films, sometimes we, we don't make such good films, but we do make films. One of my first questions was, how much money do you think you'll
0: be spending on it? And they said, oh, probably $10 million. I think they ended up spending about
1: $3.75 on it. They were considered schlockmeisters. It's schlock, but they sure do make a lot of it. The name of the game is to do, not
0: just blah, 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 blah. Talk about it. Uh, th- that was actually oh. speaking of trains
1: <laughs> yeah the, okay but you were saying that there was it was really bad that there was mo- one moment though when he bursts in on all these Germans and he's got a pistol and for some reason they're all standing there with their rifles raised uh, at him